Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton, and this is Rules-Based Disorder here at Colin. As always, I am going to invite everyone who's listening to feel free to go ahead and join the queue, and I'm going to take your questions, and I'll respond to several people. I'll be doing this today for about 40 minutes to an hour, depending on how the crowd is. So please feel free to join the queue, and I'll start responding um, before I have Andrew here, just while people are joining the queue, um, feel free to join. I'm just going to spend a few minutes just talking about this story that was just reported by AP, by the, the Associated Press. I think it's a really important story and it's not getting much coverage, but it, it really shows a lot about how the USDEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, is extremely corrupt and is deeply linked to drug trafficking. The AP just published a story called Veteran Miami DEA Agents Charged in Bribery Conspiracy. And it talks about how two different DEA agents were charged with taking more than $70,000 in bribes in order to provide sensitive information about pending investigations to another former DEA agent who is now working as a private investigator for attorneys who are defending Colombian drug dealers, Colombian drug lords. So again, to, to simplify the story, DEA agents were taking tens of thousands of dollars in cash as bribes to give private information to another former DEA agent who is working for lawyers for Colombian drug lords. <laughs> I mean, for me, this story says so much about the DEA, which claims to fight drugs. I mean, but it really shows that the the drug war has always been a complete farce. And what's interesting is this, this story in the AP also points out that just a week ago, another DEA agent was sentenced to 135 months in prison for taking bribes from drug dealers. So <laughs> these are the the men and women fighting the drug war on the front lines of the drug war, taking tens of thousands of dollars in bribes, in cash from drug dealers. And the AP article on the most recent corruption case notes that that money was spent on a Porsche and on a condominio, <laughs> a, a condominium. So a condo. So it's just like, this is the real DEA. And for people who are interested more in this, I was recently listening to a very interesting interview with this guy named Mike Levine or Michael Levine, who was a former longtime drug uh, DEA undercover agent. He worked for the DEA and he also worked for other U.S. law enforcement agencies doing anti-drug stings. And he wrote a book called The Big White Lie that talks about how the war on drugs is a total farce, about how U.S. intelligence agencies have supported drug traffickers, especially the CIA, supported this coup in Bolivia in 1980 that installed the top drug dealers in Bolivia as the leaders of the country. And on YouTube, you can find an interview. It's called My 20 Years in the DEA with Mike Levine, and it's a 1992 interview, and he just talks openly 
about how the, the U.S. government, these spy agencies like the CIA and, and other agencies would just work openly with drug dealers and prevent him in his work from trying to stop drug trafficking. And he was very naive and he joined thinking that he was going to actually fight against drug trafficking. But then he realized that it was way above his pay grade and that U.S. intelligence didn't want drugs to actually stop being trafficked. So, I mean, the fact that we still have these corruption cases just shows how deep that that systemic rot is in the DEA. But I just wanted to point that out at the beginning here because it hasn't gotten much coverage. The journalist at the AP who tweeted it out got like 12 retweets, but I think it's a story that speaks volumes to the bogus drug war. But with that said, I'm going to jump now to the queue. So Andrew, go ahead. You're first. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Good. That's that's pretty funny. I just pulled up the article and it's it's like describing exactly the same revolving door that you could see with like a Mark Esper or um, a Lloyd Austin, you know, doing their doing their bit in the agency and then going to some nice kickbacks working for uh, for for some um, cartel lawyers <laughs> afterwards. It's like there's actually no difference other than the pretense of what the agency is supposed to do. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it's so similar to the lobbyist revolving door in Washington where, you know, you spend a few years as a politician, just one term as a congressman, and then you just leave. If you lose the election, you know, like a Madison Cawthorn or something, he'll probably be a lobbyist in a few weeks. And then you get paid five times as much money and you get all these kickbacks. It's that's just how the system works. Yeah, no, I think I think that's interesting. I might. Well, anyways, I'll definitely read through the rest of this article, but. Um, what I wanted to ask about actually is, uh, with regards to the Buffalo mass shooting, um, this is now the second really high profile mass murder that has cited eco-fascism as, uh, as sort of a, a really, uh, integral part of the ideology. I mean, of course it also takes some, uh, kind of deference to white supremacy broadly, but I think the. Um, the conversation I wanted to have actually is, is if you wanted to talk a little bit to how like green capitalist propaganda actually feeds into, um, a perceived scarcity that's not real. I mean, there is artificial scarcity from capitalism that is kind of, uh, a really important tool to keep people competing inside capitalist systems. And then there's also actual scarcity that's kind of, um, kind of, uh, external, external cost that's def- alarm go off for a second but there's like real scarcity that is just a you know there is an ultimate limit to the earth we haven't anywhere near reached that um and then there's a artificial scarcity that's imposed by capitalism i.e like you know supermarkets throwing away food and having guards um stand by the dumpster that type of scarcity or housing you know there's far more unused housing units in the united states than there are people without houses um And then the, but then when it comes to green capitalism, I I actually think like when you see the cop 26 type of crowd really lasering in on fossil fuels and, and, um, and basically greenhouse induced, uh, climate change as the only way to fight against extinction crisis. I mean, I, 
I studied ecology in university and I know that's just not true. Most extinctions, um, which is, you know, extinction is as a, as a trend is rapidly increasing. It's already at an extremely alarming rate. So there is a problem, but it seems to be that land use cutting off habitats and then, uh, pollution and over harvest are really the, the three main driving factors for extinction. But then you have like people like George Monbiot who does kind of believe there needs to be population control um, and also believes that we need to really transition to like a lithium ion powered uh, and solar powered e- economy and selling that to people is like, Oh, we need to do that. Uh, and then at the same time, there's like all this scarcity that is causing people to kind of curl up into a, a more antagonistic social mindset. So that I, I don't really have like a, a great way to phrase the question really short, but that's kind of the ingredients I wanted to toss at you and see what you, what you thought. Yeah, those are some really interesting points. And I'm glad you actually are emphasizing this because I haven't seen many people talk about the eco-fascism angle of these mass shooters. I, uh, I definitely didn't read like every page of this most recent manifesto of the Buffalo fascist, but I did like kind of skim through it and look at some of the main things. And I mean, you're right that he does. He, I think he has a line in there where he, he says, you can't be a fascist if you're not an environmentalist or something like that, which is a really interesting passage. Something like the only real fascism is green fascism. So it's like this weird 4chan argument that he's having with other fascists. And it, it reminds me, you know, of like the the internal fights, like within any different political movement. There's always like, you know, libertarians arguing about who's a real libertarian or Islamists arguing about who's a real Islamist or whatever. So, I mean, every kind of ideology has that internal fighting, but it's just so it's so sadistic, but also in like a horrifying way, kind of funny seeing this fascist criticize other fascists for not being green fascists. But yeah, I, mean, I think you you hit the nail on the head in terms of certain points. One at the at the root of this is this Malthusianism that you sometimes see from liberal imperialists. You mentioned George Monbiot, who's a major liberal imperialist, you know. He'll call himself like a progressive. I think he'll, he might even call himself a socialist, but he always supports every war. He loves NATO. I mean, this guy is a, is a total social imperialist, a social chauvinist. And he basically has also echoed these kind of Malthusian arguments that we see also from the, like the Gates Foundation. Bill Gates is very much a Malthusian. And of course, all of these people, when they say that the global population needs to shrink, They're not talking about the population in rich imperialist countries that are responsible for the vast majority of fossil fuel, uh, fossil fuels, fossil fuel use and carbon emissions. And the point, I mean, it's an it's it's an obvious point, but the important point to always stress is that, yes, you know, uh, you could say that there's way too much consumption in the world, but that consumption is not evilly distributed around the world. The vast majority of that consumption is happening in the so-called West, in industrialized countries, also to a lesser extent in Japan, South Korea, and less than even them, uh, China and India. But I mean, the, the, the burden is on the imperialist countries that, that already have spent hundreds of years developing their economies and their countries by just carrying out complete e- ecocidal destruction. 
So the Malthusian, the, like the liberal Malthusians, like Bill Gates and George Mambiat and others, they want people in the global south to suffer and to, to literally die or at least not to be born. So people in the global north can keep these privileged lifestyles. And you have to, at the end of the day, you have to ask, I mean, how different is that ideology from these eco-fascists? And, you know, you said two, there's been two recent high profile uh, terrorist attacks by these eco-fascists in the U.S. But, of course, the classic example is the Unabomber, right? This isn't new necessarily. And there's been like this kind of weird fetishization of, of the Unabomber that I've seen in the past few years. And I think it's just, re- it's just like it reflects this kind of black-pilled, nihilistic culture, political culture in the U.S. So some people are trying to like rehabilitate him. But I mean, he was basically an, uh, an eco-fascist too. So this is not necessarily new, but the climate crisis is getting worse and worse. And especially young people, they see that very clearly. And it's, it's relevant to point out that this fascist in Buffalo is only 18 years old. I mean, there are so many young people who just feel completely hopeless and nihilistic because they see that the U.S. government in particular, but in general, many governments are not doing even the most bare minimum to fight this disastrous climate change that is going to screw over their entire generation. So, I mean, I think you're right that a lot of these like liberal Malthusians and these green capitalists, I mean, at the end of the day, they are fueling this kind of green fascism and I should point out that, you know, not, not that China's uh, environmental footprint is, is certainly perfect. I mean, there's certainly things to criticize. This is still a developing, formerly colonized country, and it still does use a lot of fossil fuels, although its fossil fuel use, its footprint, carbon footprint per capita is much smaller. We always have to look at these per capita, right? But I should say that China does deserve credit. Last year alone, just in 2021, China built more renewable energy infrastructure than the entire world combined built in five years. So it is possible to have a, a radical shift in your country's economy and your infrastructure and your energy use and move toward eventually, you know, more gr- environmentally sustainable green energy and you know, I agree with you. I'm, I am a little bit skeptical of all these technocratic arguments that the the solution is just like everything lithium iron batteries and wind turbines. Like, I mean, that that is a necessary step, but it's not sufficient, especially when we keep in mind, where is that lithium going to come from? It's going to come from the global south, primarily Bolivia, Argentina, Chile. It, are the people there going to be Mexico, treated fairly? Too. Yeah, Mexico, which is which is nationalized its lithium. But I mean, all that said, if we have to compare the the response or lack thereof of the U.S. and the West in general and compare it to that of China, again, even though China's response is certainly not perfect, it is taking infinitely more steps. And it's clearly taking this much more seriously than the U.S. government, which is basically doing nothing. In fact, last year, China built in one year more wind turbines than Biden has pledged, well, rather, let me, t- let, me t- let me rephrase that. Last year, China generated more energy with the wind turbines that it built last year alone in 2021 
than Biden has promised to build up until 2030. So in one year, China had more wind energy than the U.S. plans in the next eight years. And that's only what Biden has pledged. Of course, whether or not the U.S. government actually meets that goal is, you know, very much uh, uh, something that I, I think we can't just take as a given. So, I mean, I'm, there's there's a lot of things to say there, but I think you're you're definitely right to point out that green fascism is not going away. And it's also related to if you look at a lot of like the anti-immigrant rhetoric, I mean, I think that's going to be really weaponized as more and more people are not only immigrants and refugees that are displaced by wars, but also when we start having major droughts. And in fact, at the beginning of the war in Syria in 2011, droughts were one of the factors that started the conflict in Syria. And we're going to see more and more conflicts in Sri Lanka right now. Their climate change is is playing a role in fueling the political crisis. And in the decades that come, there are going to be millions and millions of people who are displaced by these these crises created by climate change. And as natural disasters become more and more common and the response of these Western governments is going to further fuel these eco-fascists by basically saying, no, screw all the refugees and immigrants, you know, pushing this anti-immigrant rhetoric and demonizing people who are fleeing because of climate change. So I agree with you that we really need to understand how all of this, like this toxic mixture of green capitalism and anti-immigrant bigotry and racism and tech like technocratic ideas that we can just solve these problems with with, with that have to do with overconsumption by just like making more batteries all of that is just contributing to make the the crisis of eco-fascism even worse so good point yeah i i can i respond real quick to a couple yeah of go ahead for sure so for one, the the point you made about China, I think, is very important um, because you know there for for people who are on board with the idea of like uh, a state project um, combating climate change. I mean, China and Mexico, I think, to a lesser extent, Mexico because of the resources, but they're both doing what you would expect a state government to do, who is taking it seriously, which is for one. They've been building a lot of high-speed electric rail, which is which you can easily convert the energy source from. Once you have that infrastructure, you can convert it into something else that is less uh, damaging. Uh, and there's a whole host of other things that they're that they're doing that are interesting and and really you know t- speak to with their actions that they're taking the problem seriously. Um, but even if even if there was a really genuine um, transition to that type of model in many countries, and we started to see a real reduction in in carbon and methane outputs. Those are kind of the two main greenhouse gases that that absorb a lot of energy in the atmosphere. There's two problems that I I guess I kind of wanted to address more that won't be addressed by that. And one is that for for people who are thinking primarily about greenhouse gases, the ocean so far has absorbed most of the heat and also a huge amount of the greenhouse gases that have been emitted in the industrial era. And that's really just because of a differential pressure or differential um, pressure of the specific gases. So for instance, if there's a far greater pressure just from the carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere than there is under the ocean, well, it will absorb that. And that's why you hear about things like ocean acidification and and reefs kind of um, bleaching, they'll call it. 
Um, but then the other, and so, so as if, even if we cut off fossil fuel production tomorrow and, you know, and we stopped emitting, um, we still have extremely degraded terrestrial and oceanic ecosystems that are capable of taking up the carbon. So if we stop emitting fossil fuels tomorrow, there'll be, you know, decades and decades, if not hundreds of years where the parts per million in the in the atmosphere above the ocean will remain relatively static because the as the differential pressure changes it reduces in the atmosphere well theoretically then that will come back out of the ocean in in large part i'm not sure that all of it will because some of it has again caused acidification meaning that it's chemically um become more integrated into the the liquid but there will still be gas you know like coming out of a soda bottle when you open the cap and then the other thing is that um, well, so basically what I mean is we have to, we have to weather the, the temperature change anyways, we, you know, we, we might make it worse if we don't stop, but we have to weather it anyways. And that kind of brings me to the other point. Like, even if we transition to this, this extremely, um, kind of cyclical energy economy rather than one that's just, um, linear and taking from a source that's, that's currently not in the atmosphere, putting more in the atmosphere, We've we've already fragmented all of the ecosystems that actually support life. We've polluted so many of the water sources that, like, I think actually when the when the narrative around you know say that we actually successfully change from fossil fuels in the United States, and then ten fifteen years from now you're still seeing agricultural collapse because of the you know, kind of terrible Monsanto Gates Foundation USDA sort of policy. Uh, you're still going to, you know, the extinctions are not going to stop because the underlying behavior that's causing the extinctions is not actually, to pri- right now, it's not primarily the fossil fuel use. So I I feel like that that's going to, I guess I'm just kind of saying it because it's like, it feels like an emergency to me and like people really hyper-focus on the fossil fuels part, but actually like without changing the agricultural policy, without changing the kind of unplanned um you know, like urban gro- and suburban growth and things like that into a direction, or at least integrating more um, ecological habits into that kind of growth without doing anything like that. We're still going to end up in a place, you know, decades down the line where ecofascism could grow well beyond the point it's at now because they, they, they will have, you know, equally bad ecological problems and they'll have this green energy and they'll still be pointing to, Increase, you know, worsening scarcity. So, anyways, I'll, I'll shut up. But that was that was something I really wanted to address with the whole buffalo shooter that I don't I don't think is really coming into play, even when people do, which I agree is not frequent enough, even when people do mention his eco fascist and kind of green um, green white supremacist tendencies. Yeah, I mean, thank you for for raising those points and and what you said is absolutely important to understand. I mean the environmental damage that we're seeing around the world is 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 completely devastating and you're right that we should see it as a as an emergency and there are countries around the world treating it as an emergency where i am right now in nicaragua the government treats climate change very 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 seriously and a lot of countries in central america and the caribbean treat climate change very seriously obviously because they're the ones that are going to hurt the most from the consequences of extreme weather and climate change. Nicaragua was hit by two hurricanes in the span of two weeks last year. And I mean, not just Nicaragua, Central America and the Caribbean was hit by those hurricanes. And of course, the the frequency of hurricanes is increasing. And we see a lot of countries in the global south, especially island nations, smaller countries, just 
constantly saying at the UN and other institutions that this is an emergency, that the climate catastrophe that people are talking about is already here for them. And of course, the reality is that, you know, a lot of rich countries led by the US where a significant part of the political class refuses to even acknowledge that climate change is real in the case of Donald Trump or the other significant faction of the political class basically refuses to do anything about it, which is the Democrats. I mean, it it is really, I, I understand why people feel so numb and black-pilled and nihilistic about it because it's really, it is really depressing. But that's why we just have to constantly talk about how important it is and, and look at examples, you know, like what China's been doing, like what Mexico has been doing. It just nationalized its lithium. Bolivia has also been been taking important strides in that direction, also with a state controlled control uh, state controlled lithium company. So there are state led models around the world that we can look at, but of course this gets down to the fundamental political problem in the US where the state is controlled by billionaires and corporations who have no vested political and economic interest in combating climate change. So great comments, Andrew. Thanks for bringing that perspective. I always, you know, one of the, I do acknowledge that one of the things in my work that I don't talk about enough is the climate crisis, the climate catastrophe. So I always appreciate when people can add that, that element as well. So Mike, you're next in the queue. Go ahead. Hey, Ben, um, really interesting uh, question there, Andrew. Uh, uh, and also on the your first point, Ben, the, the article about the DEA in, in Miami, I mean, it's just kind of remarkable. I mean, I know you've uh, talked about the history of the U.S. government and running drugs like in Latin America before. Also, I think um, you're probably familiar with Alfred McCoy's book about how the CIA yeah, was running heroin in Southeast Asia, and even going back further, right? Like British empire running drugs to China. So it's just, you know, it continues to this day, which is pretty, pretty remarkable. But my question has to do with um, your view on kind of the structure, I guess, or the architecture of like the capitalist class today. I just uh, finished a book called Giants, the Global Power Elite. And it basically kind of theorizes a transition from like post-World War II, where you had like nation state power elites. And then through the process of globalization up to today, it's sort of transitioned to what to what they call transnational capitalist class. And this kind of group of, you know, capitalists from around the world kind of get together in these, you know, international institutions like NATO, the WTO, uh, even things today like uh, World Economic Forum, right? You, and they use these institutions to then pass on kind of their instructions to governments to kind of uh, push forward their agenda. Um, and I know, you, especially the past couple of years, there's a lot of like conspiracy theories around this, especially with covid um, and the World Economic Forum, the Great Reset and all of that. But, you know, they do exist. And, and these organizations, you know, especially after World War II, when America was like the dominant capitalist power, you see groups like the Trilateral Commission, um, you know, different groups coming out of like the Rockefellers, for example. 
And you can kind of see that they bring in, yeah, capitalists from all across the world, East Asia, um, not so much Africa. But um, my question is, do you think that we're still in a period where like the nation state power elites are in charge? Or do you do you kind of see this like I don't want to say globalist, but yeah, transnational capitalist class as being sort of the ones you know, kind of ordering governments around um, using these other institutions? Yeah, very interesting question. Um, I'm, I'll, I'll get to that in one second. I just want to point out that when we're talking about opium and drug dealing, um, people should really read up the history of Warren Delano, who was FDR's grandpa, grandfather, and, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that, you know, uh, FDR is guilty for the crimes of his grandfather. You know, I, I don't think FDR is like some perfect angelic figure. There's stuff to criticize about him. But in the context of, you know, U.S. political leaders, he's definitely one of the better people. But uh, but his grandpa, his grandfather was a complete monster. And that's where a lot of the family money came from is Warren Delano was a straight up drug dealer. And he was responsible for smuggling opium into China and profiting off of the opium war in China. So like it's, it's pretty ironic that probably the most progressive U.S. president ever was the grandson of a capitalist drug dealer who made his fortune off of the opium war in China, which really, again, shows talking about capitalist elites. I mean, uh, the problem is not with the individuals. The problem was with the capitalists as a class, because, I mean, if the, if it's in their economic interest, they will do things like smuggle opium into China and get and get millions of people addicted to this drug and destroy their country just to make money. But on the on the subject of this book, you mentioned Giants, the Global Power Elite. I haven't read it, so I, I won't be able to speak kind of directly to the points that he's arguing. But I do have to say this argument, this idea is not new at all. This, in fact, was that th this was first articulated, maybe not first, but it was famously articulated in 2000 in this famous book, Empire by Hart and Negri. And, you know, anyone who's gone through like grad school seminars and in social, like sat in on a social theory class, is you often hear Hart and Negri and their book Empire quoted. And it's pretty funny because the book was published in 2000, one year before 9-11 and the beginning of the war on terror, which basically, in my view, rendered the entire book's argument kind of irrelevant. And also it's worth mentioning that that book got a very positive review in the New York Times, which says a lot about how much it really challenges the ruling class because the mouthpiece of the ruling class, the New York Times, praised these so-called post-Marxists, Hart and Negri, and their book Empire. Basically, the argument is not new, and I actually strongly disagree with the argument. I think there's elements of truth, but I think that the argument is used actually, basically, to take attention away from the crimes of imperialism by making it all this problem, supposedly, of this stateless in the sense of uh, non-national, international capitalist elite. But I think the past few years have clearly shown that that's false. Now, in the 1990s, I get why people like Hart and Negri believed that, 
because that was the moment of U.S. unipolar hegemony. So when we're talking about these international institutions like, you know, the, the World Trade Organization, like Davos, like the World Economic Forum, like uh, the World Health Organization, like the United Nations. I mean, people there's there. I see why people have this argument that these are the transnational stateless capitalist oligarchs, the elites. They travel all over. They're jet setting billionaires. They their corporations control, you know, what is discussed in these fora. That's not necessarily wrong, but I think we need to understand that as that was the institutional apparatus created by the U.S. empire. And it the reason it seemed like it was not rooted in the U.S. state is because that was exactly how the U.S. sold it. The U.S. sold the world that these are multilateral institutions. The U.S. sold the world the idea that they can participate equally, but we all know that that's clearly not what happened. And and Russia wanted to be integrated into those systems, into those institutions in the 1990s and early 2000s. And then Putin in his famous 2007 speech at the Munich Security Conference, which is another example of those international organizations, Putin made it clear that Russia was not being allowed in in the you know the the club right in the the big boys club or the old boys club or whatever. So I actually think that this argument, which has become very popular on the right in the U.S., especially you know Glenn Book wrote a book, uh, Glenn Beck wrote a book or probably Ghost wrote a book about the the Great Reset, which is real, of course. The World Economic Forum Davos. They did publish this idea of the Great Reset. It's completely neoliberal, and it's basically just a call for for neo techno feudalism, a kind of ultra capitalist techno feudalism. But I mean, that's the view of the U.S. ruling class. I actually strongly disagree with this idea that these are like the transnational globalists who are who are trying to create like this international system. No, they're just they're an extension of the U.S. empire. They are part of the U.S. empire. And now Russia has been kicked out of those institutions because at the end of the day, those institutions follow orders from Washington. And it's U.S. corporations specifically that are making the, the, the policies and, and deciding what gets discussed. Yes, there are some European corporations. Maybe sometimes there is even like a, a Chinese corporation, a South Korean, but it's the U.S. at the end of the day. And going back to Woodrow Wilson, the... U.S., the, the faction of liberal imperialists, like the Rockefeller-style liberal imperialists, have always tried to use the cover of multilateralism to defend U.S. imperialism. And after the overthrow of the Soviet Union and the overthrow of the socialist bloc in the 1990s, they won out. And that's why I think that idea became so popular, that now the, the, the enemy is no longer imperialism in certain nation states, but rather this transnational oligarchy of capitalists who are stateless. No, I mean, and and we also see that not only with Russia being kicked out of the club, but also the increasing isolation of China, because what happened is basically China made a decision and there's elements that are understandable about this, although there's elements that are also, you know, objectionable. China made the decision that as Deng Xiaoping said, we're going to lie low and um, bide time, or that's not the, usually the translation is 
maintain a low profile and uh, maintain a lie low and maintain a, or maintain a low profile and buy time in order to develop. So basically the point is that China integrated in 2001, it joined the World Trade Organization and very slowly it was developing its productive forces and it was part of these institutions, but it was only part of these institutions under the impression, you know, like the World Economic Forum, like the World Trade Organization, under the impression that eventually it was going to liberalize and would do exactly what the former Soviet Union did with Russia, with mass privatizations and, uh, you know, creation of a bourgeois democracy in which billionaires control the political system. Of course, China didn't do that. And a few years ago, with the rise of Xi Jinping and a turn back to the left in China, a lot of these Western capitalists, they, they woke up, they were like, damn, we were wrong about that. We thought China was going to just become another member of the club, and it's not. And once again, I think that shows that these institutions are not part of like some stateless transnational power elite. They're extensions of the U.S. empire. The Bretton Woods system was created right after World War II, which created the IMF and the World Bank with the dollar as the, as the global reserve currency, which was originally pegged to gold, and then got off of gold in 1971. So these institutions are not old. They go back really to the post-World War II era. And I don't, I think the UN, of course, is, is going to keep living on. But a lot of these other institutions, I don't think that they have a very long history, to, very much time left to go. Like, because we already see they're fragmenting. We see with the creation of the BRIC system, we see alternatives to the World Bank and the IMF have been created, like the new developmental bank. We see the Asia Developmental Bank. We see also the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So, yeah, again, just to reiterate this point, I don't agree with that analysis of the, you know, the transnational elite. I think that that era is over and the new Cold War is going to expose how those institutions were always vehicles of U.S. soft power. And that's one of the main reasons the U.S. has tried to prevent any alternative institutions from being created, like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, like the Bolivarian Alliance in Latin America, like the like UNASUR, the Alliance of South American Nations. But yeah, interesting question. I mean, that idea was really in vogue among academics when Hart and Negri were very popular. But I, I think there's a reason that it's gone out of vogue in the past few years. Um, so I'm going to go next to... Uh, to Fahim, who's next in the caller queue. Go ahead. Ben? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, okay. Uh, perfect. So, um, Ben, I have a uh, couple of or maybe three uh, questions. I'll try to go through it pretty quickly. With uh, regards uh, to uh, Russia, I mean, uh, I uh, came to the U.S. as an immigrant back in uh, 94 when I was 18, turning uh, 19, and my uh, family's uh, last stop uh, was in Pakistan. And um, the thing that I find really confusing is what is it about uh, Russia that sends uh, uh people in the U.S., also very much in the left, uh, in a complete tizzy. I mean, uh, how many people, like, even have met Russians 
face to face and uh, or people from Russia face to face and all. And I say this because I mean, when I was growing up in uh, Pakistan, my house was right next uh, to the Russian consulate, and I used to go there every uh, day uh, to uh, play uh, table tennis uh, because I didn't have a proper uh, table. And and I did that for like a few uh, years before I immigrated to the U.S. And nobody at that time, uh, and at that time it was the Soviet Union, but nobody at that time ever gave me a pamphlet on Marx or uh, communism and all. And uh, and so when I hear people just going batshit uh, crazy when it comes to Russia, it just blows my uh, mind uh, away. Uh, so, I mean, I'd like to uh, get some uh, thoughts on like uh, uh, what uh, is the, I mean, what is the whole uh, uh, thing behind it? And um, with uh, regards to the uh, whole uh, green fascism uh, thing, I mean, one of the things I have often uh, found uh, that really lacks in uh, the uh, left for anybody who is uh, 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 coming from a middle of the road uh, mindset but it wants uh, is interested in like stuff like uh, farming or animal rearing and so so on and uh, uh, so forth I most of the folks that I have come uh, across who who they who would teach stuff like that they've all been either like uh, totally libertarian uh, types or complete anarchist uh, uh, types. Um, but I don't see where, uh, like, uh, any left alternatives who uh, would, uh, who are uh, sources like that. And the reason why I bring it up is because if you're around, uh, if your politics is not grounded on, like, okay, if you're anti-imperialist or anti-war and so on and so forth, the company that you're going to be around can really swing you in one direction or uh, the other. And uh, finally, uh, okay, with regards to uh, the uh, cold, uh, uh, with uh, uh, the regards to the rhetoric on uh, China, do you feel uh, that this whole uh, uh, new cold war with China? may end up being fought now on the backs of the countries along the Belt and Road. And I bring this up because the previous Cold War was pretty damn hot for uh, the countries in the global south. Uh, so I'd just like to hear your uh, thoughts. I know I hit you with one question after the other, but I uh, just want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, great questions, Fahim. Thank you. Um, I'll say, first of all, I'll just respond to your last point first. I agree. I mean, the so-called Cold War was very hot, and it already is hot, depending on where you are. The new Cold War already is hot, depending on where you are. And it was Sam Marcy who had this analysis that the original Cold War, the first Cold War, was a global class war. And I think that's absolutely correct that it was a global class war and the U.S. led the war along with support of former colonial European powers. And it was a war on socialism and a war also in general on 
poor people in the global south to forcibly resubordinate them so the colonialist powers led by the U.S. could take their resources and land and control their markets. And it's very similar today. And the difference now is that China's economic power is significantly larger than the Soviet Union's ever was. So we already are seeing conflicts and the Belt and Road is already a kind of the main proxy battleground. So Myanmar is a good example. Myanmar has basically become a kind of proxy conflict where it's an important part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And the U.S. has been for many years, but has been supporting the certain faction of kind of pro-imperialist neoliberal forces and led by young Aung San Suu Kyi, who was president until a coup recently. And they represent the more pro-Western faction. They're not entirely anti-China because China is their neighbor and their most important trading partner. But among the political factions, they are the most pro-Western and the U.S. has been supporting them. And the military has shown it, itself to be slightly more pro-China. And that's why after the coup, there were all these Western-backed organizations that were burning down Chinese infrastructure, holding protests against China. So that, that's just one example. And it's obviously going to get much hotter from here. And there are many countries. I mean, the coup in Pakistan recently, clearly the close partnership between China and Pakistan is an important factor in there. Now, obviously, the new regime is unelected, extremely corrupt regime is not anti-China because, once again, China is Pakistan's most important trade partner. So they're not going to turn against China openly. But you, you can see definitely much more of a pro-Western policy, especially being implemented by the military now in terms of Afghanistan whereas Imran Khan didn't want any U.S. bases in Pakistan, no drone strikes in Afghanistan. And he had pursued very close relations with China and also with Russia. So those are just two examples. There are many more of these growing conflicts where the Belt and Road Initiative is kind of this battleground. In Latin America also, we saw in Bolivia after the coup in 2019 against Evo Morales, we saw that, that the coup regime took a very hard line against China. And of course, it was strongly supported by the U.S. And across Latin America, there's a very similar situation where many right-wing forces that are pro-U.S. are also pushing anti-China talking points, whereas the left is calling for more infrastructure projects with China, like in Ecuador. Rafael Correa, who was the socialist president for two terms, he had a very close relationship with China. So... You're right. You're very right to point out that the Belt and Road is going to become this kind of proxy battleground. And we're already seeing the U.S. pressure a lot of countries that are part of the Belt and Road to end those contracts with China, to either end them early, to not pay all the money, to just outright break the contract. We're seeing a lot of pressure there. And in the case of Ecuador, the U.S. even offered to buy Ecuador's debt that it had with China from these infrastructure projects. And the U.S. claimed that, that China was supposedly trapping Ecuador in debt. And then what happened is that the U.S. collaborating with the right-wing regime of Lenin Moreno, it bought up all that debt, and then it trapped Ecuador in three times as much debt as it had even before. And the difference is that when that it was in debt with China, China was giving very favorable conditions, and China was actually building infrastructure in the country. 
Whereas when the U.S. traps these countries in debt, they don't build infrastructure. They just give the money in the form of big loans to these corrupt oligarchs who just pocket the money and give it to their friends and contracts, as we see in Argentina. So very, very good question. Um, now, as for Russians, how Russians are seen in the U.S., I mean, a lot of this just goes back to the first Cold War, right? And the insane propaganda against Russians. And it's also that in the U.S., when the, when the, when the government is trying to push a particular foreign policy, they will often use kind of like racialized propaganda. So we saw that with the ridiculously racist propaganda during the war on terror. And I mean, just remembering how insane things were in the, in the first decade of the 2000s with all of the anti-Muslim bigotry and, and racism and xenophobia and how like it was clearly racist because there would be like Sikhs and even Hindus who are like clearly not Muslims who would be attacked in hate crimes by like these racists who would say like, you know, uh, say something about like Allah or whatever. So there was, there was like Islamophobic attacks on Sikhs who aren't Muslims, but they thought they were Muslims because they're wearing turbans or whatever. So it, similarly, as there was this demonization of people from West Asia and South Asia, I mean, this, there's, there was like this kind of racialized demonization of Russians and it's not, it's not the same level, but it's similar. And we see so much propaganda. We've seen it for years going back to the election of Trump and Russiagate where people will just go on CNN. These, these are like prominent U.S. government officials. And they'll say things like Russians are dishonest. It's in their like genetics. It's in their culture. Russians can't tell the truth or they're or like the part of Russian culture is lying. I think John Brennan, former CIA director, claimed that he said it was like in their genes. So it's because it's politically advantageous for the U.S. government. And, you know, I was born and raised in the U.S. I was educated in the U.S. education system. And there's tons of anti-Russian propaganda. I always went to U.S. public schools and there was always crazy Russian anti-Russian propaganda. So you're right that most people in the U.S. don't even know Russians, but they have all these stereotypes. And I didn't even mention all the TV shows and movies and What's funny is, it's, I mean, it's also sad, but in a, and again, in a kind of sadistic way, what's kind of funny is you can see who the U.S. State Department's main geopolitical adversaries are in what decade based on movies, on Hollywood movies, right? So, you know, you go back to movies in the 80s, and a lot of those movies have Russians as the enemies, as the villains, and then in the 1990s and 2000s, a lot of the villains were like so-called terrorists who happened to always be like Muslim and or like in like Arab or something. And then in the past few years, we've seen more and more vaguely Slavic villains, also more and more Asian villains. And even they made they remade that dumb movie um, Red. Someone probably knows this, that dumb movie in the 80s where like the Soviet Union invades some small town in like Colorado and like these like four bootstrapping teenagers in high school, like single handedly fight the Red Army. And like, is it Red Dawn or something? I, I, and they, they remade that movie and it was supposed to be China. But then because they were trying to, to market the movie in China, they like in post, they, they edited all of the Chinese uniforms and made them like North Korean. So that was another example of how clearly U.S. foreign policy interests have changed and become more anti-China. 
And then another example is the third season of of Stranger Things, where you know th- that was made in, in during peak RussiaGate in the Trump era, and suddenly out of nowhere, the third season of Stranger Things, this popular Netflix show, becomes like full on '80s style Cold War propaganda, where the evil Russians are like trying to destroy the world. So that 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 just permeates deeply into culture, and and it reflects U.S. interests. And then um, the other point was, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, what was the other question? I think it was about China. Here, I, I unmuted you. Go ahead. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, On first of all, on the Russia thing, my main question was with regards to, it, it blows my mind away of how many folks who call them leftists, uh, yeah. uh, themselves leftists and all are buying into uh, the uh, this uh, whole uh, anti-Russian propaganda or the uh, proxy of war uh, right now. And when they so when I hear that, OK, we must do something and I'm like, what do you mean by do something? Every time we do something, our, <laughs> our way of doing something is going and bombing uh, uh, someplace. And and you know what? Uh, a while back, Vijay Prashad once uh, said something uh, that because um, I would at times be like, hey, is this a certain good war thing or thinking of like U.S. benevolence in one case or uh, the, the other, not largely. But we once made a really great point <clears throat> that most people, uh, if you with any level of sensitivity, you ask them, was the Vietnam War something that helped the people? Was it a good war they'll say that no it wasn't like most uh, folks so he mentioned that you know the class character of the government that was uh, uh, around during the time of Vietnam is the same is pretty much the same as the class character of the government right now so what makes you think that this time we're doing something to help the people and so to me that was like such a uh, eye-opening or like eureka moment where I was like, you know what? Okay, what makes us uh, think that this time we're jumping in to help anybody? But no, the last question was with regards to the um, part of eco-fascism because I see the fact of like a lot of folks who, uh, if they're not grounded in the thing of uh, like, okay, I'm against wars uh, against imperialism and all uh, when uh, if they want to go and learn about uh, uh, like let's say animal husbandry uh, growing crops and all a lot of the i have yet to come across uh, sources uh, that are lefty uh, uh, sources who would uh, teach you stuff uh, 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 like uh, like practical skills uh, like uh, that. Most of the sources that I have seen, they are either like super anarchist type or really on the right. So to me, I'm like, if somebody wants to learn stuff uh, like that, they... <clears throat> If, if you're keeping a company that is very right-wingy uh, thing and you're learning under them, you can be really influenced uh, uh, to, uh, on their uh, uh, ways as a, uh, because you don't have an alternative. Uh, and so that's where I was going with uh, a lot of uh, 
times I've seen folks who, uh, who want to learn certain skills, but they don't have any, uh, uh, like from the left, I don't see anything other than commentary and talking about theories and this and that, but like, I mean, practical uh, 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 skills of, uh, regarding environmentalism and so on and so forth. So, Oh yeah. Great. Thank you. A very interesting question. And, you know, I, I think you're right. I'm not going to push back really because I think you're right. Although I would say that I do know some friends like I had in college who were really into sustainable agriculture and who did like woofing, um, like WWOF, where they worked on organic farms. And I know some people where I am here in Nicaragua, some people from the U.S. and the global north who were really into to sustainable agriculture and who moved down here and have like small fincas, small farms where they do, you know, permaculture and, and organic farming. But you're right that I think in general, in a lot of the U.S. and Canada, people who are into agriculture like that are, you're right, often are, you know, anarchists, like at least if they're on the left or are kind of like uh, preppers, right? Like who are, they're right wingers who would think that the civilization is on the verge of collapse. And, and yeah, that's a good criticism. I mean, I think the left should encourage people to do more sustainable agriculture. The world needs farmers. And especially earlier, we were talking about the horrible environmental destruction we're seeing everywhere. And, you know, uh, here in Nicaragua, it's an interesting case where this is one of the only uh, only countries in the world where the number of people who work in agriculture actually is increasing, whereas in most of the world, the number is decreasing. So, yeah, that's that's an interesting point. Unfortunately, I don't know a lot about it, but I think it's it's good to encourage that on the left, encourage people to, you know, while they're still engaged in political struggle, don't just become completely, you know, apolitical, but to definitely get involved in, in sustainable agriculture. So very interesting point. Thank you, Fahim. And um, we're nearing an hour, so I'm going to take the final two questions. So uh, there's two more people, and then I'm going to wrap up. So next is Jin. Go ahead. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Okay, I'm good. Um, my my question was uh, it was a bit of a uh, a bit broad, but I'll, I'll just incorporate my uh, own line of thinking into it. Um, the question is, to what extent is the U.S. a vassal state of China, um, which may be a bit of a um, well, I guess my line of thinking, where it's really about more of my hot take, was that I really do think that uh, Russia, um, that the war of Ukraine, uh, was very much. Uh, uh, a matter of China blackmailing Russia. And I don't think Russia had any interest in, uh, in the matter. And I think the only reason why, uh, it all, uh, went down was because of, uh, China's, uh, influence in the West and ability to, uh, to spark Cold War, ter- um, tension. So I think China, uh, a lot of people don't really recognize what China's end goal could be. And I generally, uh, I generally understand that as uh, wanting to create a uh, a system of vassal states that give gifts to the emperor, kind of similar to a, a middle uh, uh, kingdoms uh, type uh, uh, feudal system. And uh, most of the states on Earth um, are a mix of political and economic, as is shown with the Belt and Belt and Road Initiative, 
Um, what's unique about Russia is that um, it's economic, but China allows Russia to have some political uh, um, autonomy, given that it's China's benefit for uh, for there to be you know more than one uh, um, you know to, to be partnered with someone in you know taking over the world. However, the um, the system is that uh, China blackmailed pretty much blackmailed Russia, in my opinion. I mean, R- Russia had been in the conflict of U- Ukraine for like seven years before. So there really wasn't that much of a immediate cri- crisis, uh, except for what the West had done at the last like month or two. So it very much is a, uh, you know, and and I think Russia very much is uh, aware that, uh, um, you know, Russia really didn't have much of a reason to, uh, to I mean, it doesn't have much of a reason to start a conflict. I mean. And maybe if someone in the audience thinks that it's due to intolerance or genetic inferiority, I mean, hopefully you're aware that those reasons are <laughs> not really reasons why people would start a war. Um, but it, it really just goes to the question of how much influence China has in America, um, which just makes me wonder, uh, you know, if China could start a if if China has such a a good grasp of the American left, in my opinion. Uh, um, which really uh, determines social mobility in, in the West, given the left has a lot of control of the cities. It really, um, yeah, I, I really don't know what to. Think. All right, all right. Well, uh, yeah, you made you made your points. So I'll just say that that's completely wrong in every single way. I mean, the left in the U.S. controls no institutional power. The Democratic Party is not the left. The Democratic Party, and every other country on earth, pretty much, would be considered a right wing. Party, And if you look at its policies in the Republicans, their policies are pretty much the same when it comes to actual economics, when it comes to foreign policy. Their only real differences are cultural. The idea also that the U.S. has that China has control over the U.S. is is insane. I mean, first of all, China is a developing country still per capita income in China is still lower than per per capita income in Panama. Like the idea that China is like this. This gargantuan, you know, behemoth that controls everyone is absurd. I mean, if you look at U.S. corporate investment in China, it is U.S. corporations that have been exploiting Chinese workers in order to build products that are sold by U.S. corporations. China is the country that has been repeatedly oppressed by the U.S. and before that colonized for 100 years until the 1949 revolution. Like the idea that China has become like the global superpower is just inverting reality completely. It's the U.S. government that is the superpower that is oppressing the entire world, including China. And the idea of China forcing Russia to in, to militarily intervene in Ukraine is honestly one of the craziest things I've heard in a long time. It was the U.S. and NATO that pushed Russia to intervene in Ukraine after the U.S. backed a coup in Ukraine in 2014 that overthrew Ukraine's democratically elected government in a coup in which far-right neo-fascist elements played the key roles of the muscle, and then proceeded to wage a proxy war for eight years. The U.S. proxy war in Russia via Ukraine is not new. It goes back to 2014. 14,000 Ukrainians died in that proxy war waged on Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the East. And then NATO constantly insisted that Ukraine was going to join, which would mean that Russia could have 
a NATO power with a 2,000 mile border and right next to it. And it could also potentially have nuclear weapons pointed at Moscow where they would have a flight time of five minutes to hit the capital. That was what pressured Russia to intervene. And the current CIA director who previously served as U.S. ambassador to Russia admitted that he wrote he wrote in a William Burns is his name. He wrote a, a 2008 embassy cable in which he said that Ukraine joining NATO is a red line for Russia. And if if Ukraine does join NATO, it could it could force Russia to militarily intervene. And he also said it could cause a civil war in Ukraine, which is exactly what happened. I mean, China has basically nothing to do with forcing Russia to intervene. In fact, China has been trying to broker peace because China, which is one of which is Russia's top ally and and President Putin has referred to China as his top ally. Uh, President Xi Jinping has said that China and Russia have something better than an alliance in the, in February before the Russian intervention. They published a joint statement in which they referred to each other. Both countries referred to each other as their most important ally. But China is also an ally of Ukraine. Economically, at least, they have been doing a lot of business. And China has been trying to broker peace talks, diplomacy between Russia and Ukraine. The idea that China wanted Russia to invade Ukraine doesn't make any sense. It was the U.S. that wanted Russia to invade Ukraine, which is what happened, because then the U.S. knew it could use that to reimpose control over Europe, to, to to kill the Nord Stream 2 pipeline with Germany, which it successfully did, to impose brutal sanctions on Russia that would keep Europe economically independent from Russia, which would mean that it would be economically dependent on the United States. And now we see Europe importing energy, liquefied natural gas from the U.S., instead of importing significantly cheaper energy from Russia. The U.S. is behind all of this. China has basically nothing to do with it. And in fact, the U.S. is now trying to drag China into the conflict so they can also justify imposing sanctions on China, just as they they have kicked Russia out of the international financial system. So, yeah, I mean, it's a very bizarre idea that China is controlling the U.S. and it doesn't make any geopolitical sense. And it's just simply false. Um, So I'm going to go next now to uh, I think Gastroso is... Uh, gas, gastroff, gastroff. Go ahead, gastroff. Hey, uh, okay. Well, gastroff, uh, I guess I, I made you, I put you in the call queue, but, uh, gastroff looks like they logged off. So anyway, uh, well, uh, this is the last question then. I'm going to get armchair here and then I'll conclude. Armchair or daily? Go ahead. Uh, hey there. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. How are you doing? Awesome. Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Sorry, I was muted. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, so- Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> okay, great. Great. Okay. Oh, good Good to hear that you're doing well. Um, my question is, I guess, just to get a little bit more understanding. So do you believe, and maybe you've talked about this before, uh, I just hopped on, on the call, so apologies if you've covered this already. Uh, do you believe that Russian, as you call it, intervention, that it was morally justified? Well, I mean, politics is not about morals. I, I, I don't support any war. I think war is always bad. 
but you have to understand who provokes the war. And the reality is that no country on earth would tolerate let, 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 what Russia has been tolerating. So let's say if the U.S. were what, what, what would the U.S. response be if Mexico, if Russia organized a military coup in Mexico that overthrew the elected government in which far-right extremists played a key role? Well, or, in the case of Mexico, a wait a second, I'm answering, military coup. I'm answering go your ahead, question. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. So go ahead. let's say there was a coup. I mean, okay, it wasn't a military coup because the Ukrainian military, but it was a violent coup led by far-right thugs and neo-Nazi gangs who became part of the military after the coup. So, okay, I guess it wasn't the Ukrainian military before the coup, but they became the military after the coup. But let's say there was a violent coup in Mexico, and let's say in the Mexican equivalent, let's say drug cartels played a key role in that coup, and then they, they were given government posts after the coup, and they were incorporated into the Mexican National Guard, and then Mexico became part of a Russian military alliance, and they even discussed putting nuclear weapons in Mexico five minutes from Washington, D with a flight time of five minutes to Washington, D.C. The U.S. would not tolerate that for a microsecond. The idea of morality playing in this is, is not how politics works. The reality is that the U.S. has been deeply immoral by fueling a war in Ukraine um, that killed 14,000 Ukrainians in the past eight years. And yeah, I don't support war, but you also have to understand the role of the superpower that caused this war that didn't begin when Russia sent its troops in in February. It began in 2014. I think it's a little bit interesting that it's when the U.S. does something clearly immoral, like... Um, like waging wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, you, I'm assuming you would call that something, um, something bad on moral grounds. You would comment on it on moral grounds instead of re resorting to saying, well, it doesn't matter in politics. The morality doesn't matter in politics. It's just, it's just real politic. But when it comes to Russia, you don't want to, you sort of reluctantly acquiesce that yes maybe it was immoral I, I am against all war but really that's not how politics works i think there's a bit of a double standard here but that's not even the most important thing um i think saying that the u.s would do the same thing is doesn't really answer the question because I, I, I wasn't saying the U.S. would do the same thing. I think the U.S. would new, use nuclear weapons. The U.S. would do much worse than what Russia is doing. <laughs> so, so, but let's say let's let's even say it did it did the same thing that Russia was doing. Let's assume that happened. Would that be a moral, legal thing? Would you would you would you say that? Oh well, it's just politics. Or would you say it's completely immoral, whether or not Mexico is in alliance with Russia? Do you think the U.S. would have any moral right to invade Mexico because Mexico is about to be in alliance with Russia? Well, there's so many differences. I mean, that, that analogy doesn't even work either because the difference no, but is I'm that... Using, the, but I'm using your analogy. Yeah, well, of course. I know, and I'm, I'm, I'm answering your question. The difference is also that the U.S. is the global hegemon, the global superpower that helped overthrow Russia's government back in 1991 and then imposed brutal kind of neo-colonial policies on Russia that led to millions of excess deaths, and then subsequently and surrounded Russia by with antagonistic military powers that have NATO military technology 
And as recently as last November, NATO was doing military exercises in Estonia, 100 kilometers from the Russian border. I mean, the reality is that the you can't just pretend like this war is between a plucky, supposedly democratic, tiny country of Ukraine versus the big behemoth of Russia. No, this is a proxy war between Russia and the U.S., NATO, and Ukraine as their proxy. And Elliot Cohen, the neoconservative architect of the Iraq war in the Bush administration, boasted openly in the Atlantic magazine that this is a proxy war. He boasted that the U.S. is I, using agree, Ukraine. And I agree with you. And I agree and, with you. Yeah, I, agree, so, I, I, agree, I agree that it's a proxy war. But how can you by, see by saying, Russia and the U.S. Saying, are not the same? Go ahead. Go ahead. Ru- Russia I, had its never, government overthrown by the U.S. That. But I never said they're the same. The point, the point isn't that they're the same. The point is that when a country, Russia, whether it's provoked or not, when it starts a war, that should be clearly and unequivocally called out. That's what I'm saying. That doesn't mean that then the U.S. can't use that war for its own interests. Well, I had never said that. Russia didn't start this war. Russia escalated the war, yes, but Russia didn't but, start the no, war. The U.S. Yes. started the war in 2014. So 14,000 Ukrainians how died. How is that how not did, a war? Is, because that's a civil civil war between a place in Ukraine that wanted to unilaterally secede and the federal no, government no, 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 no. It, it wasn't a civil war. It was the beginning of the proxy war in which the regime in Kiev installed by the U.S. through a coup what then was then given billions war, of dollars war. of military assistance by the U.S. military, which trained the military to fight the Donbass. I mean, this war, is not a, how can you call it a civil war? Were, were people who voted for Poroshenko in 2014, were they all CIA agents? No, I, I mean, obviously no one is arguing they that. They weren't. So, so how can you say that? Yeah. And by the way, by the and by the way, it, in that election, who were the opposition candidates, by the way? I have no idea. Yeah, but because the, the opposition was the actual real political opposition that would have a chance of winning was forbidden from participating. And there was just a fake puppet opposition that they knew would not win the election. I mean, this is exactly okay. how and, these operations okay. work. And that's and, and you can criticize that. But there have been ele- several elections since. There's you been one election there. since. And what happened? Okay. Zelensky won in a landslide speaking Russian, claiming that he wanted peace with Russia yes. and claiming that he would implement the Minsk II agreement. And what happened? Okay. The U.S. government forced him to do a complete 180 and abandon all of his promises. And then what happened after that? Russia demanded that the U.S. and NATO give written security guarantees. And the U.S. and NATO said, screw you, we're never going to give you written security guarantees. And then Russia sent its troops in. You can't ignore all of those factors. But I'm, I'm not ignoring those factors. The point is you're calling this an ongoing war from 2014, but you're ignoring the I mean, we, again, you can criticize the Ukrainian government for not including the opposition. I'm, I agree with you. If they, if they excluded the opposition, that's wrong. But it doesn't mean that they were like that the whole regime of Ukraine is illegitimate and parts of Ukraine can unilaterally secede from it, especially when another country, Russia, is, I mean, funding and training and bringing troops over the border. I mean, you, you, you do know that, I mean, the reason why those territories of Ukraine that they wanted to secede, if Russia did not help that, 
that would never happen. They would never even get a chance of having the uh, possibility to secede or fight with the Ukrainian army. You, under, you do know that. Yeah, that's right. And also what would also happen is they would not be allowed to speak Russian in schools. They would not allowed to be used Russian, use the Russian language in the media. Their rights would continue to be systematically violated by this ultra nationalist regime that honors Nazi collaborator Stepan Bandera as a national hero. So let's not act like the alternative for them was some great cuddly democracy. It was it, it, a horrific it, it, far right regime it, well, that is what pushed them to want secession. It wasn't the left wing. I agree with you. It wasn't a a, a perfect even even it was probably wasn't even a good left wing state. That I mean, the the post coup Ukrainian government officially honors Nazi collaborators as national heroes and builds monuments to them and names its main streets after Stepan Bandera, who murdered tens of thousands of Jews and Poles yep. and Romani. Yep. And, and 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 Russia has people, sixty percent of the people who love Stalin and think he was a good guy. Every country For, who defeated Nazi Germany. I mean, how can you compare them? Stalin led the Soviet Union when it defeated Nazi Germany. Stefan Bandera yeah. collaborated with Nazi Germany. Yeah, and he also and he also killed six million or tw- like uh, millions of people were 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 repressed and killed because he was a paranoid maniac. You, you wouldn't you wouldn't dispute that that Stalin wasn't a, was a wasn't a good guy, would you? I mean, this is this is where are you, where are we going with this? Like, what is what are you trying to get at here? <laughs> well, what with with Stalin point or no? With, with I mean, like I mean, it's like I I welcome people who have different views, and it's been like a good conversation. But I'm just curious, like where what you're aiming at here, because this is toward I'm the end of the screen. Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, look, feel free to cut me off at any point. I'm just. I'm not aiming at anything. I, I just wanted to, I popped on and I heard some things that, you know, sort of felt questionable to me. And I asked you, you know, if you felt that the invasion was justified and you said that, well, it's not, you're against all war, like the, you know, sort of vague statement. But then you said that, well, politics is cruel. But then it just seemed to me that there's a little bit of a double standard when you talk about U.S., uh, conduct in the world. I think you are right in saying that it's not just real politic. It's not just, you know, it's not just how the world works. It, they're doing immoral things. And that's why as leftists, we call it out. But when it comes to Russia doing immoral things, it's not so much about morality anymore. Somehow it becomes more about real politic. And then, you know, the, the the moral question just comes comes second, you know, as as as, as a qualifier. Because so, we have uh, to understand the power imbalance. The U.S. is the global hegemon. It is the empire. It is the significant economic superpower. Russia is a semi-peripheral country whose economy is the size of Italy's, and its and existence it as a state. And it, and, and it also yeah. has as many nuclear I mean, weapons. So does Pakistan. As, as, is Pakistan like a, a global superpower? As, no, I mean, North back, Korea has nuclear weapons. Yes, it, it has more nuclear weapons than the U.S. It's the only country in the world that actually can destroy the United States. Yeah, and that's it has so many nuclear weapons because it was part of the Soviet Union, which was overthrown sure. in a series of re- color revolutions and but that was backed by the rele- U.S. That's irrelevant, but that's irrelevant to the point, though. No, th- that is the point. The point is that Yes, you cannot, that Russia and the U.S. are held to different political standards because they're not the same level of power. And it's just as, I mean, this, I, I don't like comparing geopolitics to individuals, but it's like, 
comparing a mass murderer to a thief, like saying that the, a serial killer and a thief are both equally bad because the serial killer, yeah, I mean, he has but killed nobody, 500 but people, but, but I didn't no, say but that. the point is that obviously the Russian government has a lot of aspects I don't like about it, but I also understand that the Russian government is not the one going around the world waging all of these wars and causing all this instability and imposing neoliberal structural adjustment on countries and trapping them in odious debt. Well, it, and is, doing in fact, well, it is doing it now. I mean, with one war, it's doing it now. It, R- Russia militarily intervened in a war that was right on its doorstep with a massive 2,000 miles. But there wasn't. But that's the thing. Like, it wasn't a war. Like, you keep saying 14,000 Ukrainians died. How is that not a war? That's, because that's because Russia funded a secessionist militia. That's I mean, that's if they didn't do it, it there wouldn't be no war there. Again, what, we can talk about what, why did those people in language. Ukraine want to secede? They were fine before 2014. What happened in 2014? The U.S. created a coup that systematic the regime systematically violated the rights of Russian speaking Ukrainians in the eastern part of the country that made them want to secede. And then, yes. Russia sent them support to defend themselves while the U.S. was also sending billions of dollars of weapons to wage this proxy war. So, again, we yes, like like I said, I'm not going to support any war, obviously not. But we also have to keep in mind that, you know, if again, to simplify it, if you have a bully in your school who just bullies all the kids around, everyone hates him. Everyone is afraid of him. And then you have one kid who's who's suddenly starts fighting with the bully and punching back at the bully. Obviously, I'm not going to encourage kids to fight, but you have to understand who has the real power. It's the U.S. that is the global superpower. And that doesn't mean that every single action that Russia commits, every single action that it takes is something that is going to, something that I'm going to defend. But you also have to understand it in the context of a desperate country that is trying to defend its bare, most basic security interests against a global superpower that is oppressing the entire world those are not the same i think it's i mean i'm happy i'm happy to i i don't want to keep you keep you uh you know over time but i think it's i'm just going to say one last thing i think it's a vague generality to say that the u.s is a bully and everybody else is just a poor victim of the u.s i think u.s is a bully i agree with you there but to say that Russia right now and in the last eight years hasn't been a bully in a particular place. Again, U.S. is much larger, much more powerful. Of course, it's, its actions are much more destructive in the world. But to say that Russia hasn't been a bully in Ukraine is ignoring a lot of what is done in Ukraine. When you say when you talk about a coup, I mean, look up a definition of a coup. It was a popular revolution. And yes, I agree with you. Yanukovych was ousted unconstitutionally. And again, the fact that people from his party weren't allowed to participate in elections, that's bad. And we should criticize Ukraine for that. But to say when you have free elections, well, well, not maybe not free, but certainly relatively free elections where you people can participate and run for president, you can't just say that U.S. installed a government and controls you, uh, you know, Ukraine, and it's a vassal state of Ukraine. I think it's a generalization, and I think it's trivializing a an important and nuanced country. And I think you know that's 
where you get a picture where U.S. is this huge bully, which again, to a large extent, I agree with you. But then you have the reverse problem where you treat all other countries as its victims when clearly right now Russia is acting like a huge bully. So that, that's that's and then I'm going to end on this. So and thank you for well, taking my call. Yeah. Well, thank you for asking it. And thanks. It's always fun to, to have a debate. But I do have to say that I didn't necessarily I didn't say that Russia is completely an innocent, perfect, benevolent country. But like I said, it's like comparing a serial, a serial killer, a mass murderer to a thief. Like obviously both sides do have problems, but they're not nearly in any way the same level. And the last thing I'll say here is that, I mean, indisputably what happened in 2014 was a coup. All you have to do is go listen to the recording of Victoria Newland, the top state department official who said very clearly who the leaders of the post-coup regime would be in Ukraine. And a few weeks later, that's exactly what happened. She specifically named Artsinyi Yatsenyuk, who became prime minister just a few days later after the coup. But even aside from that, I mean, the former prime minister of Ukraine, who was prime minister under Yanukovych, has publicly gone on record saying in interviews that Zelensky has no sovereignty, pointing out that Zelensky was elected as a peace candidate, promising peace with Russia, speaking Russian in his campaign. And he did a complete 180 because the reality is that, first of all, economically, Ukraine is entirely dependent on the IMF, which means on the U.S. Otherwise, without the IMF support, the economy would collapse. And also politically and militarily, it's also completely dependent on the U.S., which is why he did a complete 180 and imprisoned the opposition and shut down opposing media outlets and has been doing whatever Washington wanted. So, I mean, that's that's my view. That's that's a view of a lot of people around the world. But thank you for your perspective. And I want to thank, thank everyone. You. I want to thank everyone who joined today in this call. It went a little longer than usual, but, you know, it's fun to have some of these discussions. And I do two of these a week. So I will be back next week if people want to ask more questions And I'll see you all next time. Thanks for being here. See you.